Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm Travis Pauley, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. In this episode, Wes sits down with Michael Whitworth, author of the book, The Son's Supremacy, A Guide to the Book of Hebrews. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Well, I am incredibly excited today to be joined by my good friend, Michael Whitworth. Michael, thank you so very much to, uh, for, for being part of our podcast today. Hey, I appreciate you having me on, Wes. It's great to see you and uh, uh, great to be with your podcast listeners. We haven't gotten to visit in a while, so I'm I'm just excited to catch up with my with my good friend on the one hand, and on the other hand, I'm also incredibly excited about your new book. Um, I'm I'm I just I I loved every page of it. You, I, I'm gonna try really hard not to just uh, flatter you with all kinds of nice things to say, but um, I just I have so many things to say about this book, and I just. I enjoyed it so very much. I think it was so, it's so important, and you're just such a great author. You you are probably, in my opinion, the best in our brotherhood. Um, you just the way that you tie together the research, the academic side of of every study and discussion that you you do. Uh, but also your wit and your humor is so good and it just makes it makes it so in, incredibly enjoyable so i just i have all kinds of good things to say about it but i'll stop talking about it and we can discuss it and i just want people i'm grabbing, at, at I'm the, grabbing a pen now to add a few zeros to the check i'm sending you <laughs> now well i just <laughs> i hope that people will take the time to read it because uh not only will they be enriched by by doing so but they will enjoy doing so it's it's just an enjoyable read and it 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 not only makes us a better better people but it's it's enjoyable and i think so so much preaching teaching writing uh in christianity in the church i think we're missing some of the joy and humor uh that should be there and you bring that so well in all of your writing so thank you thank you brother i appreciate that's very kind Wes. thank you so the the book obviously is a study of or a guide for Hebrews. So let's talk about Hebrews. Uh, why is this such an important book? Why did you decide to cover Hebrews? Uh, why do Christians need to study Hebrews? Uh, yeah, those are great questions. Um, Hebrews, in my opinion, uh, is uh, certainly among the most majestic books of the New Testament, you know, and even the entire Bible. Um, but also there is this deep complexity to the book. And uh, I am a person that's drawn to complexity within majesty. Uh, I think that Hebrews is perhaps more perplexing than even the book of Revelation. Um, you know, with Revelation, we know who wrote it and to whom it was written. And those are two details that, you know, concerning Hebrews, you know, we're, we're missing that information uh, and have and, and, and have always been missing that information for as much of church history as we know about. And so, you know, one of the reasons I was drawn to Hebrews was, was because of that, that depth, that, that complexity that exists there. And certainly it's a majestic book. Um, another reason I was drawn to it was uh, up until now, uh, I had only written on one, uh, uh, one book, of, well, really two books of the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, those who are familiar with me and my teaching and my writing, um, they know that Old Testament narrative is my wheelhouse. I'm much more comfortable in, you know, Genesis and First and Second Kings than I am in uh, in any of the epistles, 
And so I wanted that challenge of, of going back into the epistles. And uh, sometimes I felt like with Hebrews, I was biting off more than I could chew or certainly more than I bargained for. Uh, but as I explained in the introduction, the ultimate reason I came to Hebrews um, uh, was that after our son unexpectedly passed away uh, about five and a half years ago, uh, I, uh, I experienced a crisis of faith that I never expected to experience. And I had a need to fall back in love with Jesus. And I knew that Hebrews would help me do that. And uh, certainly it did that and much more. And so that's called, kind of the ultimate reason I came back. I came to Hebrews was uh, I knew that I needed to have a, a, a rededication to my Lord. And, and there's so much in Hebrews uh, that is written or spoken uh, to help Christians uh, appreciate their Lord more than they already did. Mm. Let's talk about that right there for just a second. Uh, we, we briefly talked before we started recording about the need that the church has to rediscover Jesus and to refocus on Jesus. Do you feel like that's something that's missing, that he is something that is missing, that Jesus is missing in a lot of our, uh, our conversation, our, our preaching, our teaching, our theology? Um, what do you think that, that we're missing concerning Jesus, concerning Christiolo Christiology um, in, in, in our brotherhood or over the last few decades? Uh, Warren Wiersbe, um, in his comments on chapter five, where the Hebrew author is talking about that, you know, they, they are still needing uh, milk and not meat, uh, that they are not yet skilled in the ways of righteousness. Uh, he talks about how that in his opinion, and I think there's something to this, um, but in his opinion, kind of the elementary doctrine of Christ uh, concerns what he did on earth and, uh, you know, the cross, etc., and the more advanced stuff about Christ is concerns his present ministry in heaven. Uh, and I think that there's something to that. Uh, certainly, you know, we've talked about Jesus. Uh, his name's on the sign, so we do think he's a big deal uh, for many of our churches. And uh, But a lot of times our, our discussion of Jesus is limited to as he is represented in the Gospels. Um, and yet there is not a... a uh, a, an inconsistent part of him, but but it's just a different aspect of, of his nature and person and work uh, that we learn about after the ascension. Uh, in, in fact, in the book, uh, uh, in my comments on Hebrews, I talk about how that I feel like we need to make a bigger deal out of the event of the ascension, just as we have rightly done so of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, it was necessary for Christ to ascend back to the right hand of the Father for so many different reasons. Uh, this was a part of the plan. There are things that Christ cannot do for us now if he were still alive and, and on earth. And so um, I, I, don't, I don't know that there's a need to rediscover Jesus in that we've gotten him wrong all these years. I simply believe that that picture has been woefully incomplete or, or you know, there, it's not been total. Uh, and so barring this idea of perfection in Hebrews, this idea of completeness or wholeness, certainly I think Hebrews helps us uh, see an aspect of our Lord that a lot of us have not been given, even those of us who have been raised in the church. Uh, my daddy was my preacher growing up, and I thought he was a great preacher, still do. Uh, but I don't remember a lot of sermons about Jesus as he is now after the ascension back to the right hand of God. We seem to either talk about Jesus as he was on earth during the incarnation, or we certainly talk about him when he's going to come back uh, in, in the with the second coming. Uh, but that in-between period between the ascension and, and the return, 
There's not been a lot of, uh, I think, a talk dedicated to that. I think one of the ways you can see this is as reflected in our hymnody. Um, you know, you think about um, how Hebrews is reflected in our hymns and our songs in the church. Uh, I'll give you any song on faith, you know, because of Hebrews 11. And certainly we have, you know, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Um, but beyond that, there are not a lot of lyrics in our hymnody that is dedicated or, or find their roots in the book of Hebrews. Uh, you have the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. There's the mention there of leading many sons to glory, chapter 2, verse 10. And then you know, the, the devotional song, Our Youth Sing, We Place You in the Highest Place, for You're the Great High Priest. You have that line. Uh, but beyond that, there's not a lot of, um, you know, hymns that, that speak uh, to what Hebrews uh, informs us of. And so I think Hebrews is a great study simply for the fact that it, it doesn't give us new information about Jesus in, in the sense that we've gotten it wrong all these years, but it helps us form a more complete picture of him. Whereas for, I've often said for many people in the church, all of the sermons and lessons they've heard usually have come from Paul's epistles, the book of Acts, and then the gospels usually in that order in terms of how frequent those passages are mentioned. You get outside of Paul's epistles in the book of Acts, uh, and you know there's there's been a, a, a sparsity to the number of lessons we've heard uh, for those of us who've grown up in the church. You know, something just occurred to me as you were saying that, that I think our understanding of the kingdom, specifically that the kingdom is, as, as many scholars talk about, and you touch on in the book, that already and not yet aspects, that, that there, there is an aspect to the kingdom that, that we are still waiting for, we are still hasn't yet been realized, but we do believe that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. We do believe that that Jesus has established his kingdom and that we are living in the kingdom of God. And and there is an aspect of, of that that I think that, especially in churches of Christ, who take that amillennial view, that we're not waiting for a future thousand-year reign of Jesus, that Jesus is reigning presently, that that is something that we give lip service to, that we believe that Jesus is currently reigning as king and that his kingdom has been established. Um, and, and even though we, we still have hope and expectation, there is that already sense to the kingdom that, that I think that this book helps us to go beyond just giving lip service to that truth and really fully embrace the fact that we are living in the kingdom of, of Jesus, the kingdom of God. Absolutely. One of the things that, that one of the things I always love about your books is I love the the conversation that you do in the beginning in the introduction. You do sort of a a Q and A with yourself, and you interview yourself, and of course it has your your characteristic humor and wit. Uh, but but I love I love that you answer some of the anticipated questions that people might have, and so you you do this back and forth with yourself. I love that. But in this book. And correct me if I'm wrong. This may be the first time you've you've included this uh, historical fiction narrative throughout this this guide of Hebrews. And at the uh, on the one hand, I'm I love it, and on the other hand, I hate it because I'm jealous that that you thought of it because <laughs> I wish I had thought of this. I love it. I love this historical fiction, this narrative, this character that you created. 
that that runs throughout the entire book. So each chapter begins with uh, this 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 man named Judah who is listening to the sermon of Hebrews being preached, and and he's wrestling with his faith. And so you can see that you can see the application to the book, but you can also see it through this first century pair of eyes. So talk us through what, why you did it that way and, and what you hope this brings to the book. Well, I can't claim originality for the idea. Um, uh, where I got the idea in part was uh, some of your, your podcast uh, audience may have read there's a series of books that has been published uh, by uh, several New Testament scholars, and uh, you know they'll be titled "A Week in the Life of, of, of Ephesus," "A Week in the Life of Corinth." I think there's a few others, and what they do is they kind of merge this this historical fiction. Sometimes they incorporate uh, an actual New Testament story. I think there's one called "A Week in the Life of a Roman Centurion." It's about the centurion that comes to Jesus and and wants his uh, I think it's his servant or his son, either one that wants him to be healed. Um, but what they do is they use historical narrative in these series of books, uh, and they're each by different New Testament scholars, but they'll, they'll use this series of books, this historical fiction, to help unpack the New Testament background in the New Testament world that stands behind the text. And I've always thought that they were very, very well done. Now, I'm the, I'm the nerd that I can pick up an actual book that discusses New Testament background uh, themes and concepts, and, and it's just, it's a, it's a straight book, it's, it's, it's nonfiction, and I'll read it and I'll get something out of it. But I was, I've always been compelled and struck by how much I uh, became engrossed in the story when I, even as I understood that the story was merely a means to an end, it was a vehicle in helping unpack some of these background ideas in a way that was more manageable, maybe for a lay audience. Uh, and so I had read a couple of those, and I, did, I remember exactly where I was when I had, you know, the brainstorm to do this, this story uh, as a part of the Hebrews book. I was sitting in the Outback Steakhouse in Charleston, West Virginia. I was in uh, Charleston, West Virginia for a gospel meeting. Uh, this was in September of 2017. And suddenly I just, I kind of, uh, this idea came together as I was finishing. And I had to rush back to my hotel room where my laptop was because I wanted to get it all down before I forgot it. And initially, all I planned was to do just the introduction uh, and, and to tell Judah's story just in the introduction uh, of how he, um, you know, he's going through some faith struggles that a lot of it mirrors my own. And, and those who know me and my story as they read the book, they'll quickly figure out that a lot of, a lot of Judah is a, a reflection of me. Um, and I wanted to show how he maybe comes to the message of Hebrews. Uh, I believe Hebrews originated as a sermon that was preached by someone, and then it was copied down. Uh, so much of it reads like a sermon versus a, a, an epistle. And I, I, I passed the story around to a couple of friends, and uh, almost all of them uh, to, to a person, uh, independent of each other, said they, they would be intrigued if I unpacked the rest of the story of Judah throughout the rest of the book. And that's when I had the idea to maybe continue that in, in every introduction to every chapter. Um, and so I did that. And, and ultimately, I think why it works so well is because, um, you know, we are, we're crazy for a good story. Uh, we, there's, there's, a, there's a power that narrative has. Um, I don't know if it was Mark Twain or someone else, but someone once said that if they can't get truth through the front door, they're going to smuggle it in the back door with a story. And that's the power that narrative has to smuggle truth in through the back door. Uh, I think Jesus's parables are a perfect example of, of exactly what I'm talking about. And so I hope that with this book, with the narrative of Judah that runs through the, the whole book, 
I'm, I'm hoping that the application of the text uh, becomes more conspicuous because Hebrews is one of those books where the app personal, you know, every day to day application isn't always readily apparent. And so I'm hoping that that becomes very apparent to people as they read through the story that uh, this book, for all of its profundity, it has striking and very personal application to all of our lives, to the very nitty gritty parts of our lives. Uh, and, and I hope that the story helps them recognize that. That's incredibly brilliant because, it, it as you said, the the application comes, the, the direct application or the spoken application comes way at the end of the book, but there's application throughout. And to remind people, this is why this is being written. This is what the original audience was going through. This is what they're struggling with. And you keep that top of mind, not only not only for the original audience to to read, so that we're reading this book and we're studying through Hebrews, looking at it through the first century eyes, but also helping us to realize how that applies in our world today as we struggle with our own faith. One of the things you mentioned a second ago was the author of Hebrews, and and as most know, I'm sure, that we don't know who wrote, everybody thinks they know who, and Michael will tell you that it's not Paul, so yeah. whoever you think it is, it's not Paul. Um, but uh, I, I, love, I love how you, you used the historic fiction to, to help imagine who might have been the author. So talk us through that. If, I, I don't want to give a spoiler if you don't want to spoil who, who you think wrote, wrote Hebrews, um, uh, but, but feel free to, to talk us through how you use the historical fiction vehicle to, to, to give us an idea or to imagine who might have been the author of Hebrews. Yeah, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Uh, I personally believe that Timothy is the one who first preached Hebrews and that someone whom we don't know, someone anonymous, um, copied it down and sent it out as a, an epistle. And I believe that for a couple of reasons. Um, one, if it is Timothy, it would explain why the book very early on in church history has Pauline associations, but it's clearly not Paul. Uh, the vocabulary, the style, some of the statements that the author makes, uh, I, I don't know that there's very there's no serious uh, scholarly support for Pauline authorship today, even though that's kind of been the longstanding view of, of things. Uh, but if it's Timothy, that answers a lot of questions. Um, one argument that John Calvin actually makes at the very end of his commentary is that uh, Timothy is referred to as our brother in the final verses, and he argues that this is not Paul because Paul always referred to Timothy as my son, not our brother. I thought that was kind of intriguing. Uh, a lot of people believe that Timothy's mention at the very end of the book excludes him from the conversation of authorship, but I think it, it supports it because the very ending of Hebrews contains two endings, as a matter of fact. Uh, you have, um, I believe it's um, uh, verses 19 and 20, uh, or, or uh, verses 20 and 21, rather, excuse me, uh, verses 20 and, and 21 uh, form what we would expect to see at the end of a sermon, you know, kind of uh, their version of come as we stand and sing. Uh, there's this benediction, very beautiful benediction, verses 20 and 21. Uh, and then in the final four verses, 22 through 25, you have a second ending. And it's in that second ending, for the very first time, you see language of this being a written epistle. Um, you know, bear with this word of exhortation that I have written to you. Ironically, word of exhortation is a Greek phrase used in the book of Acts for a sermon. Uh, and yet he says, I write epistello, okay, 
Um, that's the first language in the entire book of this being written. The rest of the language has been, you know, time does not permit me and, and you know, we'll go on to this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I believe that Timothy's portion of Hebrews ends with chapter 13, verse 21, that, that benediction. The final four verses essentially were a postscript uh, by some un unknown person. And in that postscript, he says, by the way, our brother Timothy has been released from prison. And if he comes to you, I'll be seeing you shortly. Uh, I think that that was him just telling the folks, hey, this is the update on Timothy, who was mutually understood to be the creator of the content, if you will, uh, that they were receiving in epistle form, sermon notes, if you will. Um, now, you know, there's other things that I think support Timothy's authorship. Certainly the person who authored Hebrews or first spoke it, however you want to see it. Uh, certainly the, the first person to, to do that was someone who was well-trained in Greek rhetoric. Uh, that is abundant on every page. Uh, someone who is well-known or someone who is well-versed in the Old Testament. We know from 2 Timothy chapter uh, uh, chapter 3 that he had known from infancy the, the sacred writings which were able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. If it's not Timothy, I think a very powerful argument can be made for, for Apollos. Uh, but we know very, very little about Apollos, and so that's kind of why I give Timothy the nod. I think also it's Pauline associations maybe gives Timothy a little bit of a, 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 a more of a, a chance in my mind. But even though I explained that in the Q&A at the beginning of the book, and even though in my final comments on chapter 13, I you know, draw out a little bit more why I think Timothy is the author of Hebrews, I also make it the point that it's neither possible nor necessary that we know who the author is for sure. And in the body of the book, if you noticed, in the body of the book, I constantly refer to the Hebrew author as our author, the Hebrews author, the author of Hebrews, etc. Only in the introduction to each chapter, as I'm tracing the story of Judah, only there, you know, do I use Timothy as the author. And, and again, in the story, Timothy isn't the author per se so much as the, the one who's preaching the sermon that Judah is hearing, you know, possibly for the first time. Um, I, I think that the value of the story also reminds us that every teacher and every preacher, every interpreter of the, of the scriptures has to have two feet. One is firmly uh, planted in the, the first century world or the biblical world, if you're studying the Old Testament, but then also a foot firmly planted in our own time. We're, we're straddling that 2000 year uh, fence, if you will. And in that, that story, I think, helps us appreciate how it was first heard by the original audience. Uh, and in an ironic sense, the more we learn about that first century audience, I think the better we are to apply it to our own lives as well. Um, but, you know, I, I imagine in the story, I imagine Timothy is the, the preacher of this material that Judah hears for the first time. Uh, and, you know, Judah is not alone. It's clear in the book that, that some of his spiritual family, they're hurting for various reasons as well. And Hebrews would have touched them, uh, not in the same way, but it would have touched them where they were living at that time. Well, I just, again, I, I love the brilliance of using this, especially for Hebrews. I think I, I think this would work for a lot of commentaries, a lot of uh, guides to a lot of books of the Bible to use this historic his, historical narrative form uh, to introduce each chapter, but I think it was particularly helpful in in this study. So thank you for doing that. Uh, I think it added so much to it. It was such a brilliant thing to do, and and I'm so I'm so excited for people to to read this and see exactly how you use that story and and really as you said tied your own story 
and, and sort of put yourself in the first century world. And I think it will help the reader uh, to put themselves in the first century world as well, no matter what their particular situation. Um, I think just, the, the unintended, sorry. if I can follow up just real quick, um, I think the the unintended thing, and in, in unintended by, by what I mean by that is I didn't set out to do this, but I'm hoping it becomes a consequence. Um, by looking at Judah's story and uh, using Judah's story and as we study Hebrews and we see so many points of intersection between Hebrews and our own story, what I hope readers come away with, uh, in, in addition to all the other lessons I unpack, I hope they walk away with a profound sense that the stuff that we're going through is nothing new, that there have been countless untold people of God throughout the centuries that have borne the same burdens and have dealt with the same mess and have cried the same tears and have screamed the same you know, words at heaven and shaken the same fists at heaven. Uh, there have been countless others who have you know, screamed out in pain or frustration or in agony or discouragement and disappointment, just like us, um, that when we suffer, uh, sometimes that pain is compounded by the, the belief that we are alone in our suffering and, and that nobody fully understands. Uh, and that's simply not the case. People may not be able to understand our, our specific circumstances, but we have a high priest at the right hand of God who I believe knows exactly how we feel. Uh, but even as we reflect through the many centuries of church history, we're not the first ones to have tough times. Uh, and there have been all kinds of saints who have been blessed and benefited and encouraged by the message of Hebrews. And as we reflect on that, as we reflect on the first century audience who maybe heard that sermon for the very first time, and as we reflect on the countless churches that have been blessed by Hebrews' message, we recognize that we are simply taking our place in a long line of the people of God who needed to be reminded, you have not yet resisted unto blood. Um, and, and I think that's what the Hebrews author was trying to do with his use of Hebrews chapter 11 to remind his audience you are not alone. This has been the way things have been for God's people ever since the beginning, and it's going to continue uh, until until the new heavens and the new earth come in all of their glory and splendor. Yeah, amen and amen. And and that may, what you just explained may touch on, on the next question, but um, what what did you gain the most from this this study of Hebrews and writing this book, and and what do you hope that that the people who read this book, what do you most hope that they they take away from it, and what did you take away from it? Uh, certainly, when a lot of people who have a passing familiarity with Hebrews, at least when they think of Hebrews, they're going to think about how it talks about the high priestly ministry of Jesus, and and for good reason. Um, it it struck me that that the author of Hebrews is the first person that we know about whoever took Psalm 110 verse 4 and applied it to Christ. Now, uh, Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, you know, your footstool. That has been touched on by several New Testament writers. Uh, you know, Jesus uses those words in his conversations with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, but this idea of Jesus ascending in power to the right hand of the Father uh, and being crowned king, that's a, that's a cry of the New Testament in many, many passages uh, the book of Acts is replete with that. Paul's letters are replete with that. But, you know, Psalm 110, verse 4, that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, we know of no other person in the first century uh, that picked up on that and saw in that a fulfilled prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. 
And so as even though I knew Hebrews was about uh, Jesus's high priestly ministry, and I knew that Jesus is a, a high priest, as I kind of explained in my intro to chapter four, Protestants don't have any frame of reference for that. Um, so removed are we from the concept of priest and priesthood. Um, and yet, in reflecting these last several years on Hebrews, I came away with a startling appreciation for the high priestly work of Jesus Christ and how meaningful that is in the day-to-day -day life of the believer. And I feel as if we do not sing or preach and teach enough about Jesus's high priestly ministry. Um, and uh, that was something that, that I walked away with being touched by in a very powerful way, uh, is that we have a part of the Godhead who is saying to the Father, you don't know what they're going through, but I do. Uh, in my grief seminars that I've conducted over the last couple of years, one of the things that I press home is that you should never use the phrase, I know exactly how you feel to someone, because the, frank, the, the fact is you don't. Uh, all losses are different. All grief is different. Uh, and yet I believe Christ can say to the Father, I know exactly how they feel because he was tempted in all points as we were. He suffered, I believe, every human emotion that we experience in this life. Uh, and, and, you know, he is speaking to the Father our own name. He's speaking a word on our behalf, uh, you know, protesting and trying to change the will of God and whatever way it can be changed. Uh, that's still a, an enigma that I haven't fully solved in my mind. Uh, but the, the priesthood in the, in the priestly advocacy of Jesus Christ on our behalf is something that is very, very powerful and has so many implications for day-to-day -day living. Uh, that was probably the one thing that Hebrews deeply touched me with. And that was the singular thing that helped me fall back in love with Jesus so much was, um, you know, I came to love God more by looking at the priestly intercession of Jesus on my behalf. That's so good. And, and I think you're so right. I think that's so missing in our theology, something that I think the ancient people and even Eastern people even a lot of Eastern people in a modern context would understand better than we do as modern Westerners that the, the idea of mediation and having somebody who is interceding so that I, those ideas of intercession and mediation are, are very much missing in our modern Western context because we think very individualistically and we think, well, if I need to talk to Michael, I'll just go talk to Michael. Whereas if if Michael and Wes are on two different on have two different statuses, and we we can't uh, have this direct one to one communication, or if somebody is a king, or if somebody is in a different role, you need an intercessor, you need a mediator, and so the idea that human beings would need mediation with God would need inter would need someone to act as an intermediary and intercede on our behalf may have been something that most ancient people, regardless of their, their context, would have taken for granted, but, but we have sort of lost any sort of context for that. And so when we think of our need for Jesus, we think of the need for his sacrifice, but we don't think about needing him as an intermediary, as an intercessor, as a mediator. Um, and I so, I so appreciate you doing this work to remind us of our ongoing need, not of Jesus continually sacrificing himself or being sacrificed, but continually interceding on our behalf. Yeah, and especially um, the, the, the implications of Jesus's high priestly work. Um, I think in a lot of, a lot of respect, we kind of take that for granted. Um, in the sense that, 
you know, if we uh, feel as if we have a close personal relationship with the Lord, uh, we hear people pray that it's indicative of the, you know, it's clear they seem to have a, a close relationship, personal relationship with the Lord. Uh, we have to remember it, that's not always been possible. Um, you know, up until 2000 years ago, uh, people did not have that kind of access to God. And Hebrews is very clear about the fact that we have unprecedented immediate access to the Father through Jesus Christ. And so our ability to pray in Jesus' name or uh, to, to pray directly to Jesus and, and know that he's carrying that request and praying to God, to the Father on our behalf, uh, that is something that is um, made possible by his sacrifice and his atonement and his priestly intercession now. And so a lot of the benefits that we uh, enjoy as Christians are things that I think we just assume have always been that way and, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, in, in point of fact, Hebrews maybe helps us appreciate uh, that it's not always been this way, but it is this way now because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Yeah, amen. So what would you say is is different? Because I don't want people to to walk away from this discussion thinking, and I don't think they will based on what we've already said, but, but I don't want anybody to think that this is like other commentaries on on a book of the Bible. So if you pull a commentary off of the shelf, and my biggest complaint with commentaries is that they are so very dry, and and really they're designed and used to to go to them. If I have a question about a verse, I'm going to go to that commentary and look up that verse. But this is very different than than other commentaries. So so how is this different than a commentary? And what would you what would you say to describe it to somebody who's questioning should I should I pick this one up what what's it going to be like and and what would you say to to answer their question or what differentiates this between this and a commentary I like to describe these guides that I write on different books of the Bible I like to describe them as conversations now albeit it's a one-sided conversation uh, but I tried to you know my writing style I try to write as I would talk in a conversational way and when I'm editing my work if I feel like I wouldn't say it that way in a conversation you know it doesn't it doesn't make the cut uh, but I like to imagine that I you know let's so someone such as yourself or, or someone that maybe attends my congregation uh, I like to imagine that we're sitting around drinking coffee and we're just you know having this conversation about Hebrews and um, I like to keep it on in a conversational tone as much as possible uh, because I, I think that helps me stay rooted in the personal application of the text. Um, but also, I, I think it always helps maintain a, a proper context for um, the many claims of this verse or that verse. Uh, one of the, the downfalls of commentaries that you kind of alluded to uh, is you open it up and see what it has to say about one verse. Uh, however, that verse has a context and understanding that verse has uh, requires a context and understanding of the broader context of the chapter and even the entire book. And so uh, my my comments in the book are not divvied up verse by verse, but divvied up section by section. Uh, so, you know, let's say you're going through some of the dense parts of chapters eight through ten. I have comments on on chapter uh, you know eight, one through six and then chapter eight, seven through thirteen chapter 9, 1 through 10, chapter 9, 11 through 14, uh, 15 through 17, uh, 18 through 22, 23 through 28, and then on to chapter 10. And so I like to divide it up into manageable chunks. Um, and people can read that whole section on that little chunk of scripture. Um, but I, I like for, to, to maintain a conversational tone. 
Uh, I even give my editors explicit direction that when they're editing my material, if they get to a point where their eyes are glazing over a little bit or they've, you know, they've checked out mentally and, and they got to remind themselves to come back and pay attention, if there's a density to the conversation, I say flag that. And that's when I strategically insert a joke or some other, you know, weird illustration to kind of break up the monotony of just reading straight through. Because again, I want to make sure that I keep the reader's attention. Uh, one of the best uh, at that in modern age, uh, if any of your audience has ever read a novel by Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, etc., he is very good about maintaining your attention because his chapters are, are like one or two pages long. Uh, and when you get to the end of a two-page chapter, you think, oh, well, I'm just going to read one more chapter, and I'm just going to read one more chapter, and I'm just going to read one more chapter. And then before you know it, it's 4 a.m. and you're still you know, engrossed in the book, you can't put it down. Well, I don't know that any of us are ever going to read a commentary or anything remotely related to a commentary with this, okay, just one more chapter, just one more chapter, I can't put it down. Uh, I'm not sure any of us could accomplish that uh, goal. Uh, but to, to the best of my ability, I want to keep people turning the page. And I feel like maybe the addition of the story um, did that for this book. Um, I tried really hard to make sure that this was an engrossing book because writing on Hebrews can be very daunting at times, very, very daunting. Uh, but I, I gave the manuscript to a friend of mine uh, that goes to my congregation here. Uh, and she told me, she messaged me one night on Facebook about midnight. She said, it's midnight and I know I need to go to bed, but I'm too invested in Judah's story. And so that made me feel really good. Um, and, and so as, as people are reading the book, I'm hoping that they um, appreciate the conversational tone that I hope it has. Uh, the biggest thing that I hope people walk away with, however, is I hope that when they put the book down, they they end up getting on their knees and worshiping our Lord, um, because that's ultimately what Hebrews is about, is just falling to your knees in gratitude and praise and adoration for just how incredible, how much better Jesus is than anything else in all of God's creation. Uh, that's the ultimate message of Hebrews, is that idea of Jesus is, Jesus is better, and hence the title of the book, The Son's Supremacy. Amen. Well, I, I know that that will be the result as people read this. It was it was for me. It gave me a, a deeper and better appreciation of our Lord and makes me long to to be with him face to face as soon as possible. So I, I appreciate so much this work that, that you've done, Michael, that all that you continue to do uh, for the kingdom. Uh, tell people where they'll be able to find the book. We'll, we'll leave a, a link in the show notes, but tell people where they can where they'll be able to find it. Yeah, the best place is our website, start2finish.org. Uh, uh, you can also get it off of Amazon, and uh, you should be able to walk into like Barnes & Noble and other places and order it there as well. Uh, it's available through all the major ebook outlets, um, Kindle, iBooks, uh, Barnes & Noble Nook, and, and other platforms. Uh, there is a large print edition as well, uh, if people prefer large print. Uh, my grandmother uh, has MS, and so uh, she loves to read. And I always do a large print edition for, of all of my books specifically for her. And then I just kind of leave it out there for sale in case anybody else wants it. But she's actually the very first person to get a copy of the book. It arrived in the mail uh, on launch day and uh, she uh, called me. She was very excited. So that made me feel good. But uh, yeah, uh, any place where you buy, uh, buy your books, so uh, you should be able to get a copy of it. The Sun's Supremacy, A Guide to Hebrews. Awesome. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you for writing this book, and thank you for being part of this conversation today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Wes. 
Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Pauly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.